To celebrate the coronation of King Charles III, you can subscribe to The Spectator and get the next 10 weeks for the price of one. Not only that, but we'll also send you a commemorative Spectator mug absolutely free. To claim this very special offer, go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash crown. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Hidden in China's March GDP figures was a shocking statistic. A fifth of Chinese 16 to 24-year-olds are currently out of work. This is near a record high, and the economic background to a fresh wave of disillusionment among China's young. It has led to the creation of a new internet meme. You've heard of lying flat, but young people are now comparing themselves to a Republican-era literary character, Kong Yiji. The government is not happy about this. On this episode, I'm joined by the journalist Caroline Can, author of Under Red Skies, The Life and Times of a Chinese Millennial. Hi, Caroline. Welcome back to Chinese Whispers. Hi, Cindy. Thank you for inviting me to your program. So the last time you were on the show was two years ago. Uh, We were talking about lying flat, a trend that's quite well known now. But a lot has changed since then, especially with the pandemic situation in China. So that's why I wanted to get you back on the show and do an update on the situation with young people in the country at the moment. So to start with, I wanted to talk about a meme that's been trending recently, this tendency to compare oneself to Kong Yiji, who is a tragic figure from a Lu Xun short story. So can we first start by explaining the story of Kong Yiji? What is that story? Okay, yeah, I hope I can do an okay job to explain this story, which is so famous in China, like every Chinese student uh, learned about it in a one of the essential like reading uh, stories. So basically it's about a scholar, a Chinese scholar who spent decades of his life uh, trying to pass through this like Chinese uh, education system, but in the old time. And, uh, but he, he is from a poor family background. So that used to be the only way for people to climb up the social ladder to be an official. So in the Chinese, there used to be an old Chinese saying, saying, uh, which is that any job in the world, in the society is not as good or as decent as someone who is, who is in the academia world. So basically like this uh, figure, by a famous Chinese writer Lu Xun. I forget which year that was written, but uh, yeah, it basically tells this story about this guy who put all his hope into education and academia and tried to climb social ladder, but he failed. And on one hand, although he failed, he always tried to see himself as like a superior, uh, someone who's intellectual, who's better than the people around him. But on the other hand, other people see him like an example of failure and who is ridiculous, who always talk about a kind of language that belongs to the intellectual, but come on, you are in this like real world, this community where there's no anyone who understands your language. Mm -hmm. And I think Chinese Whispers listeners will know that period of history quite well now. You know, it's this Republican era where the Qing dynasty has just 
ended really or always ending and centuries of these kind of civil service examinations have come to an end. So the world that Kong Yiji grows up in, the world in which he takes his exams and his education is gone. And I think quite famously in that story, he goes to the local tavern, whatever you want to call it, and he refuses to take off his scholar's gown because he, in his mind he's still a scholar, even though he's completely penniless and he just cannot adapt to this new world. Yeah, exactly. So that long gown is in the story. And to, to this guy, Kong Yiji, that was a symbol of his identity that attached to, you know, education, books, learning, reciting poetry, but to the local town people. That is so ridiculous because you know that you you think you are better, but actually you are per in a worse situation than probably like your neighborhoods, most of people who can, you know, do some labor work and to do something that Kong Yiji think is not as decent, but at least they can um, make their ends meet or support their family. Yeah. So he's not a, <laughs> you know, he's a complicated <laughs> character and it's not someone who you might think that you want to compare yourself with. So why are Chinese young people comparing themselves to Kong Yiji then? I think when Lu Xun wrote that story, behind this story, he tried to make people be aware of the situation at that time that, you know, like this education system totally failed a lot of young people who had hopes. And behind this a failing education system was a system of in the society that, you know, is much more about like social stratification, rich people like the top classes, they can like pass down their um, social position to their uh, young generation, to their children, grandchildren. But it was getting harder and harder for the working class people to get something decent in the society. So that was the message at that time when Lu Xun was right, wrote this story. And now, like after 100 years, I think a lot of young Chinese people say, Wait, wait a minute. When we learned about this story, we were trying to be critical to criticize that special period of time, the, the, the Republic of China. And the teachers and the uh, teaching the books was always like trying to uh, yeah, inspire the students to be critical and say, oh, that shows something about the, the society. About, about feudal China, China back then. Exactly. And now they say, oh, young people think, well, this is exactly what we are facing now. Yeah. So people think the high education, if you graduate from university in China, that used to be considered as something that was so rare, you know, like a few decades ago. You are the elite of the elite. And if you graduate, when you graduate, you will be guaranteed to have something good waiting for you. But now, you know, I just read a figure like this year, there will be over 10 million people graduated from Chinese university this summer. So that means like, although you graduated from even from the top universities, the chance is very small that you will get some job that you really like. So I think young people try to use this fictional figure to compare to their situation now and try to say, why this is not ideal and this is getting quite sad. And uh, yeah, that was the figure that most people know in China. And now we are the new time, new era Kong Yiji today. Mm -hmm. So they've put their hopes on education as the way to 
tackle social mobility, but their swathes of education hasn't helped them get jobs. So their education becomes this kind of gown, a symbolic thing, rather than anything that helps them get on in life. And, and you know, it's not just that those 10 million graduates, and they can't find jobs, can they, Caroline? Because the latest youth unemployment figures for 16 to 24-year-olds is 19.6%. So that's one in five people under the age of 24 who don't have jobs in China right now. Yeah, I think another thing about the comparison of Konyi's story is that, you know, people not just mention Konyi, but also Konyi's long gown. So young people say, oh, this is kind of like the long gown is a symbol of a high education. And sometimes it becomes a burden. Like if I didn't uh, graduate, attend uh, university, probably I would have lower expectation and I probably will yeah, be satisfied to have a job like a food deliver or uh, yeah, do some or work in the construction site. I don't know, like you know, the job that people think are for those who didn't go to a uh, university. But now we kind of like graduated from some of the best universities or so, uh, okay universities, but at least we are university students graduates, and we aim something higher. So to them, like, okay, well, this is like a dilemma, right? On one hand, there isn't enough job. On other hand, like, there are probably are jobs where if you go to the local, like, government uh, offices, say, well, we need more job, but they probably tell you well, there are all kinds of jobs out there. But it seems like it's not matching. Yeah, so they don't want to go for the blue-collar jobs that they think they're over-educated for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I do think it's interesting, Caroline, you must have noticed this too, how socially in China, especially the older generation, there's this kind of expectation. I don't know where it came from because, as you say, only recently was having an education a rarity at all. But now there's an expectation from certainly my parents' generation and their parents' generation, that you wouldn't only have an undergraduate degree, you would also have a postgraduate degree, a master's or a PhD. In fact, that seems to be expected of many middle-class young people. Have you noticed this too? When did this expectation shift happen? I think it's also, uh, they call it the education inflation, right? When it's really like you're adding more, more, more press tax on yourself to become more qualified Although the job itself doesn't really require you to have that many degrees, if you are undergraduate degree, you have undergraduate degree, then it's totally sufficient. But it's kind of like a competition. When there are so many people compete for one job, then the probably the one of the um not the easiest, but one of the, the solutions is to get more education, spend more years and come out and say, oh, well, now I have better training. Mm-hmm. I have more year of training. Although it's unnecessary, but it's a way to win this competition. And since when it started, it's, it's a bit hard to say, but I mean, for example, my cousin graduated uh, in 2002. At that time, it was definitely very rare to see someone who uh, had a master's degree. But today, mm-hmm. I mean for some good jobs is rare to find someone who doesn't have a master degree. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, really bizarre. And then obviously in the UK, we see the flip side of that, which is so many Chinese students coming over here to do postgraduate degrees. But actually, you know, it's, that's only one part of the picture because there's so many hundreds of thousands more Chinese students getting postgraduate degrees all over the world, including in China for that competition reason you mentioned. But Caroline, when we talk about these, you know, 10 million new graduates coming into the jobs market each year, that size problem surely was always there because China has always been so big. But right now, the reason that youth unemployment is at record highs, is there something new going on here? What is happening? Is it economic slowdown that's filtering its way down? Or is it possibly the clampdown on the tech industry in China, which employed so many young people during its boom days? What do you think are the new factors here that leads to this kind of youth unemployment? I think one of the main reasons, I think, is still the unbalanced demand and uh, supply, you know, demand and supply uh, imbalance. I mean, 20 years ago, if someone came to Beijing or Shanghai or Shenzhen and tried to just uh, find a job, and probably that person will be happy enough to, okay, well, I'll just get a job and I will return to my hometown and I will settle down and get married in my hometown. And I, that, I don't care about if I have enough like social welfare and if the job requires longer hours of working. So that was the situation then. So today, I think on one hand, the young generation, Chinese people, they realize that that is not some of the sacrifices are necessary and people want to have more decent lifestyle. And on the other hand, jobs that can provide that whole package of, uh, you know, decent salary or enough security protected by the law is still a small uh, amount compared to all the jobs available. And also like after three years of COVID, and if you read any like economic figures and um, you will see like it's, it's very clear that this economy is slowing down. If you mm. ask average people in the street of Beijing or Shanghai and people's expectation is getting lower. Yeah, even if in the spring during the Lianghui, the national, what is called parliament? The two the sessions. Meetings, yeah. Two session meetings. Even like the government probably give you an expectation, a figure like a 5% GDP in growth or, or whatever that number is. And people now have a lot of doubts. And uh, I mean, although China opens up since uh, last November, December, no lockdown anymore, but um, the economy is still is recovering, but still like slowly. Mm. So I think everything like combined together, you know, more graduates, higher expectation, but at the same time, there are not enough opportunities that would match with expectation from such a like big amount of new graduates. So I think everything add up and lead to this uh, problem today. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned COVID as well, because I wondered outside of the economic factors, the economic impact on the country of three years of pandemic control. Do you think that young people in China feel also 
that they've lost three years of their youth as well, because that's a complaint you often hear in the West, for example, mm. people who go to university didn't have a proper university experience or school students didn't have their secondary school graduations or whatever it is, people in their 20s missing out <laughs> on what should be some of the best years of their life. Is there a feeling in China of this kind of disillusionment because of government policies that they've also lost time in their life or, or is that not so much? I think like from the re uh, reactions of my friends who I can only like uh, probably tell you uh, uh, like my observation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I think my observation is, yeah, that is true. And I think probably like is uh, similar anywhere. And I think the differences is the lockdown in China was uh, more serious. And well, a lot of countries, uh, Western countries, other countries, I say, opened up and China was still uh, in this very serious lockdown. So, but I, I feel like the feeling is the same. Like if you talk to someone in the UK and they probably tell you, yeah, we lost uh, some mm. decent time for Christmas, you know, 2020, 2021. And we had to cancel a lot of like uh, gathering, meeting friends and the same in China. And a lot of people say, you know what, I before the COVID, I always feel like I'm in my 20s. And now suddenly, without realizing it, why I'm over, I'm almost in my like 30s. <laughs> that was kind of like the stolen golden year. It's a, it's a shame to everyone who were in this period of time. But unfortunately, I was like, that was everyone almost. Yeah, well, I just wonder if it's hard for me and you to say, considering the scale of China, but whether the frustration that we saw coming through in November's anti-COVID protests, you know, the trend that came out during the pandemic of we are the last generation, you know, this idea of Renshue mm. running from the country, this idea that younger people were transliterating the English word run into Chinese Ren and then calling mm -hmm. it Renology, Renshue, and saying that they wanted to <laughs> move out of China. And I just wondered if there's a China-specific dimension here where for young people, they do feel very disillusioned because of the political system. But but of course, it is very hard for us to say scientifically about that. Mm -hmm. I think there is a, definitely a fraction of the society, especially of people. I, I don't think it's even just a particularly a young people thing. I think mm -hmm. uh, there definitely is a group of people who feel more disillusioned than the average day-to-day -day, uh, people. So I, I think now is it would be interesting to, um, now after a few months since China opened up, I think it would be interesting to talk to the same group of people who were mostly disillusioned and uh, asked us, well, tried very hard to run and how they feel today. Yeah. So I think it will be helpful to know like what exactly was the reason why they want to run away from China? Is that just these, you know, last year before November, this, the policies were so strict that in my WeChat moment, almost everyone was complaining. But after a few months, maybe some of them have changed their mind. But I think pandemic definitely intensified people's dissolution and uh, their hopes and their how they view the system, how they view the society. Mm. I think it's a very interesting question. And um, I, I don't think it's just for young people, for sure. Yeah. 
Although <laughs> I am always wary of, you know, sitting from the outside uh, looking in, it does feel like some of these moments can be bigger than they feel like in China. I was talking to someone recently who has family in Shanghai and he was saying that his parents didn't even know about the November protests because they're not really on social media. It was kind of small scale, really, fundamentally. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes that's the case, right? Like people outside of China probably only... The only information people read is about certain events and it always looks bigger yeah. looking from outside. Yeah. yeah, but it doesn't mean like it doesn't exist. Definitely exists. And I think the feelings were very strong. Yeah. And there was a time like no, literally like almost all my friends were very unhappy. Yeah. It's just like, it's uncertainty. I think it's uncertainty about you know you when you could even not plan for your trip or what you will be doing next week or next month because you were not sure if there will be a new lockdown in your community or if you're doing business and you were not sure like it's a feeling of you could not control your life mm. you know okay it's not a matter of i work hard enough or not hard enough if i work hard enough i could change the result it's like everything getting out of control yeah absolutely and i want to move us back to talking about this coinsy trend because mm -hmm. you know as we talked about with the lying flat movement it wasn't long before politicians as it were started to get concerned about youth disillusionment so i don't know if you saw there was a censored post on i think it was weibo which kind of directly linked the coinsy disillusionment to Xi Jinping, <laughs> kind of subtly, mm -hmm. but comparing Xi to kind of an emperor with new clothes. And that original post said, the economy is in the toilet and unemployment is severe. Rather than make Konyiji take off his scholar's gown, how about stripping the emperor of his new clothes? So that's pretty, probably the most drastically politically directed post yet. But that's probably why as well that the government has commented on this trend as well. I think that uh, the topic on uh, Weibo was uh, soon taken down if i correct yes yeah 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 again like back to the uh the context of the uh story when lu xun wrote it that was you know about the republic of china and the goal of this story was not just about you know sharing a story but also trying to inspire people that was always like part of lu xun's goal of writing because he uh yeah he uh, was a very famously quoted as, um, you know, I decided to stop learning medicine because I think medicine cannot cure people's minds, and but writing can. So back to how, why this could be like uh, sensitive to our politicians, uh, to the government. It's like a Chinese government always trying to, you know, especially on the internet sphere, they always try to control the content of the uh the internet content, especially any content that becomes trendy and more people started to comment and share their opinions, when that become a topic that become a trendy. And then that was the moment when the government really wants to get involved and try to direct the direction of the uh, conversation. So to them, I think this topic, same as a Tangping lying flat, it's a, it's a typical like negative topic that discourage people from studying hard, working hard, and be full of hope mm. for the future. So that's the contrary to that goal. So that's why this topic, this original topic and some related topic was uh, 
soon like taken down. And not very surprising if you know the Chinese internet、uh, system, how it works, and the, how the government, how the censors. Work with a system. Yeah, and in that process of trying to direct the conversation, the government said similar things to what you mentioned earlier, which is you could <laughs> look for more manual jobs, blue collar jobs, or whatever it is. But at least from some of the reaction that I saw, that didn't seem to kind of go down very well. <laughs> Because I mean, after all,、yeah. high youth unemployment is a political problem. It's an economic problem. It's not just in the minds of a snowflake generation, as it were. Yeah, I think something、uh, important to know. Is that okay? Well, you know, some of the、uh, the government bad newspaper media said, "Oh, maybe it's time to take down this like long gown and、uh, get rid of the prejudice against certain jobs and to start first, start working first before you finding something ideal." And a lot of people get quite angry because.、Um, I saw some people say, you know, I spent so many years and put all my hope in this, and like it just doesn't make sense. Now you tell me this is not going to work. And another thing is, it's easy to for someone who sit in the office, probably like government office, and tell the youth, tell the young people, like you should go out and look for a blue collar job. It's easy for them to say that when they. Are enjoying all the privilege、uh, of the system, <laughs> and without guaranteeing that the blue collar jobs will have at least you know enough to make make a living and provide a degree of decency, right? And yeah, it's it's not like in some countries I know. That in some developed countries, in some like、uh, European countries, welfare countries, I say, it is true that if you work, let's say gardener, or if you work、uh, as a nurse, as、um, any job in the society, kind of like there's a stronger feeling of being equal, and there's a better welfare system. But it's not the case in China, so it just、uh, sounds absurd sometimes when some. State media tell young people any job is the same. Well, well, the journalists at the state media probably have all the hidden、uh, welfare. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that you might not have seen this yet, but at the end of April, the state council has released a new directive, basically tackling youth unemployment and. It's a memo with lots of policies in there, but one of them is saying that state-owned enterprises should hire more. Public institutions and social organisations should recruit no fewer than a million internship positions for the young.、Oh, wow. It's also talking about yeah, it's also talking about an allowance given, a one-off round of employment allowance given to enterprises that employ newly graduated people from sixteen to twenty-four years old. So. It almost feels like they're just throwing money at the problem and hoping to create these jobs. And I guess some government departments will be actually the receiving end of that because they'll be the first to kind of have to put their money where their mouth is and create some jobs. I I haven't seen this document, but yeah, I think it's better at least when they have an awareness that this is a problem and this is a a very uh. Serious problem again, as what we just discussed. This is that they could be a a very serious uh problem because 
all the instability. Um, mm. Yeah, if you look at any society and unemployment of the 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 youth will be one of the most threatening uh, factor to social stability. And if the government have realized this and is determined to change this or do something, that is a good news. I'm just a uh, curious, and I'm looking forward to seeing more concrete actions. Yeah, and see how they are going to uh, tackle this problem. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, in the last few years, there have been quite a few different social problems that they've tried to tackle. They recognise the problem, but tackling it from a government perspective is very hard, isn't it? I mean, like with the fertility rate, for example. But Caroline, before we finish up, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on this generational divide as well, because you wrote your memoir on your life as a millennial in China. I'm a millennial too. For our generation, we grew up with still seeing parts of China's poverty, even though the country was already becoming wealthier in the 90s and the noughties. For me, that's always meant that I have seen a before and an after, as it were, of reform and opening and can give the government some credit for China's economic growth because I have seen it, I have been a beneficiary of it, and I know what things were like before then. But I wonder what your thoughts are on the generation below us, you know, those 16 to 24-year-olds that we're talking about, this Generation Z, because they have a different story to tell, you know, born in the noughties, they never saw that kind of before stage of reform and opening. And now they seem to be at the tail end of China's miraculous growth. I mean, China will continue to grow for a long time, but it's not going to be at the double digits that we grew up with. So for this generation, do you think that relationship with the government is going to be different to our relationship with the government? Because they seem to have got less of the good stuff or less of the bad and less of the mm-hmm. good, if you see what I mean, less of the contrast. Yeah, I see what you mean. I think that will be one uh, side of the story. I think the younger generation, right, those in their uh, early 20s, I'm afraid that they will feel uh, less hopeful and less optimistic about the economic growth, you know, the financial, the personal financial uh, future, they will feel like less uh, optimistic uh, compared to us or their parents who are about like 10, 15 years older than us. But I think as a, on the other hand, very interesting phenomenon is that this generations who were born and grow up at a time when China was like largely out of poverty, they... Interestingly, they sometimes they feel more proud of China, mm. and that's why you hear some stories about the Xiao Fenhong, like Little Pink. Yeah, and yeah, the nationalistic, the nationalistic keyboard warriors. Exactly. So I think that is like two sides of a same story. Yeah. So like on one hand, they probably feel more disillusioned about the future. On the other hand, they are more nationalistic. But again, maybe that is internally linked to each other, the two sides, because they are more disillusioned and because they are less optimistic, because there are less opportunities. Mm. And that, in a way, also help to increase this kind of like uh, nationalistic uh, sentiment among that generation. Because they have nothing else to identify with or because they have to have something to believe in? Is that what you um, mean? I think there's a phenomenon that a lot of people started to like blame the uh, geopolitical conflicts to be uh, one of the reasons that stopped China from keeping growing. Mm. And of course, like sometimes this kind of opinions are again like led and directed by the census. 
So if you need an easy target to blame, the Western world is always the easy target. So I think that in a way <laughs> help to gain this kind of like nationalistic, yeah, sentiment. Yeah, to to have an to have an outlet for their complaints as well. Yeah, I think that is、uh, one way to read this new phenomenon. Yeah.、Mm. That's really interesting, Caroline Kan. Thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast@spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening, and join us again next time. Bye.